welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 31, recorded on July 16th, 2019. The Cloud Pod Development Kit, now in general availability. Hey guys, how's it going this evening? Going well. Let's go, Justin. How was your vacation? It was fantastic. Glad to be back, refreshed, and ready to go. And we have a ton of topics uh, tonight. We are a little bit behind on the show, so we're going to catch up to this week and get back on track. Did you check out the uh, Milan uh, Direct Connect? That's right. You know, I, I did not uh, check out the Milan Direct Connect, uh, but uh, next time. next time. Uh, no, it's, it's, I'm sure it's going to be added to one of the wonders of the world at some point. Yes, I'm sure it will be. All right. Well, let's get into it because we have a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, you know, a couple things happened while I was gone. The New York summit happened. The Fourth uh, of July holiday for those. But uh, yeah, so busy, busy times. Uh, the first one up, uh, Azure has uh, announced the new premium files feature is now generally available. Uh, premium files allows customers to optimize their cloud-based file shares on Azure uh, using SSD-based disk for fully managed file services. Can I just have like standard or discount files? Right, I I find this annoying. I, this whole we're gonna make every feature have a premium version of the feature, so you can then justify to your executives why you didn't pay for the premium feature before the outage. <laughs> it just I it doesn't make just any go sense. Premium with everything. Right. It's, it's like in a car wash. Do you go for the premium wash, or or do you go for the uh, the middle middle of the road kind of wash? I always go for the cheapest one possible. So is that getting the kids to wash the car, or is that? <laughs> Uh, no, they're not good at that yet. Uh, maybe someday they will be, but not yet. All right, well, let's move on from premium files because this isn't a premium podcast. So, Amazon Ops Center has been released. Uh, this is a new feature for streamlining your IT operations. Uh, customers on Amazon are, always, of course, always trying to understand who they can improve their services to make customers more productive. And new features in Amazon Systems Manager called Ops Center uh, exemplifies this approach by enabling customers to aggregate issues, events, alerts across services. Uh, these things are events and resources for accounts, uh, config changes and the relationship between configs across accounts, cloud trail logs, CloudWatch alarms, CloudFormation stack information, and much, much more. So this is a really nice uh, centralized ops dashboard for your SRE team. Yeah, I mean, with the whole concept that we're now using accounts for uh, uh, blast radius, more of this one pane of glass is so super helpful. Otherwise, you just got to build it all yourself. The whole weight we had for organizations several years ago, uh, you know, to finally get organizations and be kind of underwhelmed, I do feel I feel like they're delivering on what we really wanted from organizations finally. And there's a lot more features coming out that are cross account, cross region, etc. So there's definitely a big improvement in you know realizing that customers don't want to build all this themselves and they want Amazon to help them do multi region. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure in the beginning this isn't going to replace all of your ops um, tools. I see they're trying to sneak runbooks and things in there. But uh, who knows, this could really become a tool that supplants some of the other IT management tools as well. The only thing that's missing is building your own uh, help desk type systems in the console. Yeah, and I mean, they've already got the infrastructure for that with their support ticketing, and that's all API exposed. I could see it being pretty a pretty easy feature to add. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Maybe this is the feature they should add to Chime to finally make me use Chime. <laughs> I'm super excited to see where OpCenter goes from here. I think it'll uh, continue to get added new features and new capabilities as they continue to build out uh, a lot of new things that they're working on. Uh, Amazon Aurora Postgres SQL is now serverless. Uh, for some of you may be using MySQL serverless, you can now do the same thing with Postgres. Uh, this is an auto-scaling version of Aurora, which automatically starts, stops, and scales up or down based on your app workload. Uh, when you create a database service 
you set a minimum and maximum capacity. The storage layer is completely independent from the compute, uh, and you can have this be basically down to zero at night if you wanted to, and when someone actually uses your web app, spin up uh, Aurora database as needed, and then shut it back down after that user goes away from your website. So really nice uh, auto-scaling feature, uh, really brought to databases in a big way. I, mean, I understand services, the, the buzzword of the last couple of years, but I mean, in in the sense that serverless is a server that you don't have to manage yourself, but somebody else does. RDS was already serverless. Um, you know, and storage is already separated from compute because storage has been EBS volumes on on a, a huge disk array someplace else in the data center. So, I, I mean, fundamentally, I think the serverless name tag on this is just a marketing thing. Um, really just auto-scaling, right? Well, and also, I think the big piece is that, I mean, until they brought out like stop and start your RDS instance, which was not there for a long time. Their, your data and your server were 100% coupled. The only way to stop paying for that server was to terminate everything and then restore from snapshot. I think the serverless is really going from one to zero. But I mean, even with that, I think it's super cool for test and dev and maybe some batch type work workloads, but no one's gonna wanna wait um, for your database to go from zero to one before they get a response from their website. Well, it's it's interesting because if you read the documentation on this feature, they they talk about there's a large pool of capacity that's just kind of standing by, ready to attach to your storage at any given time that you need it. Um, and so the they're not talking about like multiple minutes for a database to start up. They're talking about you know microseconds for this to occur. Is it or is um, it tens of seconds? I mean, I never tried it, yeah. so you know your experience may be more accurate than mine. But this is how they pitch it. Yeah. Uh, and so it'd be interesting to see what the actual reality of that is. But tens of seconds is definitely a problem for many, many, many SQL transactions that would potentially die. But you know, a lot of SQL applications, um, in particular, they need that socket to be established. So I, you know, I'm a little confused how they do some of the connection handling and connection pooling of serverless. But uh, you know, they've done some magic in the back end. So. Either way, it is cool to go to zero, and it is cool to be able to scale up and down without messing around with that. Oh, it definitely is, definitely. And and if if you take serverless as meaning um, there is no fixed server and it and it can scale like Lambda does, then then yeah, totally. I I agree with the, the, the kind of the naming of the service and everything because going from one to a hundred when you need it very very quickly is is what this can do. Yeah, I I mean I definitely think this is supposed to be their answer to Cloud Spanner. Um, which is Google's database built in the cloud. And I think that's what they're trying to make this be. And it'd be interesting to see, you know, in some real-world experiments, I actually have a use case for this at the office now that supports Postgres. Um, so I plan to play with this one a little bit, see how it works. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. I'll, I'll give you guys an update. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Amazon EventBridge was announced last week at the New York City, uh, New York City Summit. Uh, this is an event-driven AWS integration for your SaaS applications. Um, these SaaS applications are for customers uh, to do things like incident response, ticketing, monitoring, etc. Uh, the tools, of course, on their own are good, but it, with it fully integrated, they become more powerful and valuable. And so EventBridge allows you to do that. Uh, you can basically directly link your Amazon uh, APIs with this SaaS applications like PagerDuty or Zendesk uh, and dynamically create tickets and things based on actions that are happening in your AWS account. It's sort of like a webhooks model, but for SaaS apps. I, I don't 100% understand the implementation, but uh, now that I, we all saw coming with uh, companies moving to SaaS applications, their data getting siloed. And so tools like this, I think, are the are 
I'm not going to say the bridge, <laughs> but, uh, pretty much the bridge to get over that hump uh, for enterprises. So I'm interested to see what partners quickly release um, cool tools to integrate all of the common SaaS applications. There's actually a pretty healthy uh, initial list of providers that are partnering with them. Um, you know, I think there's definitely use cases, particularly for companies who want to build out their own data lakes. And so if you have uh, data that's in your SaaS application that you need to have in your data lake, there's typically sometimes uh, very expensive data warehousing type stuff that you're doing or data lake type applications. And if this is a way for a SaaS vendor to now present um, this capability to a customer for them to pull that data down into their data lake, I think that's really powerful. Um, and they, you know, you read through the documentation about how they're going to do this. Um, it automatically handles the data segmentation based on client ID. It handles um, a lot of the tenant management for you in this application. So it's, overall, it's a pretty powerful service, something they've definitely been working on for more than uh, MVP level. So I expect, I'm excited to see what they're doing and what they end up doing with it long term. And if people start using this as a, a method for the number two CRM to offer uh easy migration from the number one CRM, et cetera. Well, I mean, would the number one CRM or the number two CRM even be willing to be a partner yeah. <laughs> in this program right. if it potentially allows you to move from one provider to another? I don't know. But um, you definitely, I think these integrations and this ability, there's been a lot of tools over the years that do um, integrations like Boomi and others. Um, you know, So there's definitely the need for these type of transforms. There's a need for these type of data sets. And I'm excited to see where this kind of goes. I think it kind of sucks right now that's sort of limited to AWS customers um, because as a SaaS provider, you may have your customers are on Azure or Google or Oracle Cloud, heaven forbid, uh, and they may want to have advantage of this data as well. And so it'd be nice to see some way to make this available across clouds, but that's probably not their immediate priority need. I think some of the good features about the EventBridge is that it, it, it really helps you provide a layer of abstraction if you're going to build an application that does have to create help desk tickets. You, you kind of abstract the creation of the ticket. You're no longer coding for necessarily a create Zendesk ticket, create Jira ticket type operation. You can abstract that to a simple create ticket operation, which, which goes on the EventBridge. It's a standard API for all of your events. And then Amazon routes it to wherever your choice of help desk provider happens to be. Um, I'm super happy that it supports cross-account as well as it does so quickly, when it's out of the box, I guess, um, because Kinesis uh, was just terrible to, to handle cross-account. Even if you have a few accounts, it's, it's horrendous, but trying to manage that across hundreds of accounts, it was just near impossible. What I would like to see is... Um, why, why is it limited to only, only these partners? I mean, I, I want to publish, I think you may, you may have alluded to this in the beginning, but I want, I want my own application to be a, uh, a source or a, uh, the destination on the event bridge without necessarily having to be an official Amazon partner. You know, why can't I just create my own, um, my own app and, and use, let my own customers talk to me through the event bridge? Yeah, it's interesting. They did announce a new partner program as part of this for SaaS companies that want to publish events without being in a full... Um, SaaS partner, ISVs type partner situation. So I think they are kind of cognizant of that, but how that it's going to be implemented and what that actually means to be a um, a SaaS partner for this event bridge will be interesting to see still. Yeah, definitely, definitely excited about the, the opportunity here. Yeah, I think it's uh, early days for what it could do long term, and I think it's super, super feature rich for what it has today. I mean, I'm excited to see what partners kind of come online over the next few months. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, 
Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. The uh, other big New York, New York Summit uh, announcement was the Amazon Cloud Development Kit, or CDK, uh, for TypeScript and Python are now generally available. Uh, for those of you waiting for C Sharp and Java, they are coming, but they are not quite ready yet. The CDK allows you to design, compose, and share your own custom components that incorporate your unique requirements uh, into your code directly. Uh, so you can now configure your infrastructure right inside your IDE uh, using the same programming language and with the same support auto-completion and parameter suggestions that modern IDEs support without having to switch your context. Uh, you build these components as these constructs, and these constructs can be connected together uh, in different ways. And then basically, this ends up producing a set of CloudFormation code for you uh, that you can go then plug into the CloudFormation console or API to provision your infrastructure. So, a uh, pretty nice uh, solution for people trying to do more complicated CloudFormation without being strict to YAML or JSON objects. The CDK has been around, not GA, for a little while. I've had a play with that. It, it kind of reminds me um, of Visual Basic, actually, like from, from the 90s. <laughs> Where, you know, you're going to create the objects and you click on them and you, you define the actions for, for the events and things like that. So it's it's kind of good. I wish it, I wish this had been around years ago because CloudFormation would have been a lot more digestible with um, with a tool like this, and I think uh, this uh, this stands a really good chance of of um, displacing Terraform at least in the AWS infrastructure world because what this really lets you do is is build infrastructure from Python code. You can now put all the loops in that you like. You can put all the logic in you like. And query data sources. There's lots of things you can do um, that you can't do in Terraform and you can't do in native CloudFormation. So it opens up a lot of opportunity. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Terraform, I think it's great to compare it to Terraform because HashiCorp for years has, on principle, refused to integrate a programming language with the thought that they want to keep this as declarative configuration files, not programming code. Um, And so you gain a ton of power by going down this road. I mean, get rid of all those wrapper scripts we all write around our uh, CloudFormation or Terraform applies to do the things before and after that we really want to do in code. But it also gives you a ton of rope to hang yourself with. Uh, you know, it really, it really allows you now to, you don't have a, you could end up with infrastructure that, that's built from code, but that nobody understands how it works. Um, you know, uh, every, and it gets so complicated and potentially brittle that people are afraid to touch it for fear it will break and no one's around that wrote it. So I don't know. I think that, um, I think I'm still in the HashiCorp bandwagon that this should be simple. Uh, your infrastructure should be simple and declarative configuration files. And if not, maybe you're doing something else wrong. I don't know. I mean, I think it, it, in a way this, this helps you enhance your deployment system immensely. I mean, you can integrate with Salesforce, you could query active customers, you could, you could um, create objects or deployments programmatically based on the customers that you've got in uh, in Salesforce and their entitlements. It's, I mean, it, it opens a lot of opportunity, which which takes a lot of the, the mess out of the Jenkins world and moves it into this, this uh, Python CDK. So basically you're saying we're going to find the rope to hang ourselves somewhere. Might as well be here. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely rope to hang yourself on. I think that's true of anything. Terraform, CloudFormation, you know, any of these other languages, SaltStack, Ansible, whatever. There's always room to hang yourself. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's harder. 
Yeah, it's harder if you can't write complex logic. They are trying to make improvements in HashiCorp, you know, Terraform, the, the 0.12 release. Um, they just are adding, you know, loops and different things and more programming type constructs. So I think they, they've heard feedback from people that they want more sophistication. But, um, you know, there is definitely a lot of advantages because you know, I was in the CloudFormation console today, actually, looking at some stuff. And I was playing with the Drift config feature. And I was like, well, this is actually really nice. And this is not, that's not something you can get in Terraform today. True. They don't have Drift. Um, you know, being able to see... You know, because we, we basically were like, well, maybe the per engineer changed something manually on the server. And we we're like, well, let's go look at the drift config. And, you know, right there we could see nothing changed other than our automation changed a couple tagging parameter items. And so we we're able to update the cloud formation without too much work and redeploy. So it's a pretty, pretty simple fix uh, that you don't get out of Terraform. Yep, I totally agree with the config drift. I mean, the GUI that they put the drift config into is god-awful, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> minor issues. I think... Writing JSON for years for CloudFormation, and then okay, now we can use YAML, but big deal. That doesn't really change a lot in the in the understandability of of large templates. I think moving to something like Python or C Sharp or any kind of any kind of development kit for infrastructure code and making it a programming language that people are familiar with and understand. It's easy to go through, and you can see an object being created. You you, you set the attributes on the objects. I, I think things a little as scaremongering from Peter over the complexity of the generated template, because you don't care about the generated template. You're not going to touch that manually. You're not going to go and look at it and try and debug that. You go back and debug the code that generates the template. So I'm going off of my experience seeing really bad things done with Chef, because you could put as much Ruby in there as you want. Oh, well, yeah. And that's what I see happening with this. I do kind of hope they um, they add GoLang support for this um, beyond C Sharp and Java. I mean, those that's the. I, I mean, I don't really a big TypeScript fan personally, so that's a little weird of a choice. But um, I guess it's close to JavaScript, and that's why they went that way. But um, I'd like to see a couple other languages pop up in this. But overall, yeah, I think it. I, I think it also kind of eliminates the burden that engineers have. Where like, well, I don't want to understand my infrastructure code and write Chef or write terraform i just want to write code that i understand and the language that i like and so i think that that is advantage to get developers thinking more infrastructure as code which is good too all right well, let's move on uh so like i mentioned the new york summit was last week uh but it did draw some protests uh, this is the second year in a row that the new york city summit uh has had protesters outside and in the audience for the keynote uh several times warner vogels who was doing the keynote was disrupted uh by uh very vocal demands that the company sever ties with the u.s immigration and customer enforcement uh agency so that's a, uh, a bit of a challenge that Amazon has to figure out. New Yorkers just don't really like them very much, apparently. Uh, they protested the headquarters, too. They protested the summit. They're just not happy with Amazon in general. Not happy. That is a that is an interesting new trend of uh, protesting. I'm not sure where you draw the line for things like this. I mean, I, I can see protesting about things that get that these people are doing, uh, you know, the uh, immigration agencies or whoever. But really, I mean, are you going to protest the power company that delivers power to the... To, the, to, to ICE, are you going to protest the, uh, the the U.S. Postal Service for delivering mail to yeah, them? Yeah, like, exactly. Where 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 do you draw the line? Why why is Amazon the face of this? And there's, there's kind of a joke in there because it's also all about facial recognition technology. <laughs> 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 yes indeed you know it's interesting because um jeff bezos was interviewed i think in geekwire a few weeks back and he was talking about you know he's he's in support of regulation of face recognition technology and software um so i mean i think there's some interesting things you know but the other side of it is i don't i'm okay knowing that this technology came from amazon or google or microsoft because i assume it's the same code that i can use and so i know what the capabilities are or are, are not versus a company like palantir for example who 
you know, is apparently very heavily involved in a lot of government and politics and stuff like that. And I have no idea what those tools do. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> and so I kind of, I kind of prefer the the devil I know and that I know the technology's limitations and I know what it can do. Uh, versus, you know, uh, what will happen if, you know, Amazon and Google don't do this is someone like Palantir will build this uh, for the government instead and they will just use it that way and no one will know what it does or what its capabilities are. Yeah. Good point. If that were in the lightning round, you'd already be the winner. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Google acquires a storage startup, Elastifile, for reportedly $200 million. Uh, this is an Israeli-based company we talked about in episode 17, which was not that long ago, uh, where they deepened their partnership with Google. So apparently Google is so impressed with their technology that they have now purchased them. Uh, the company raised $75 million over three funding rounds from backers including Dell, Cisco, and Lightspeed Ventures, so they're all very happy. Uh, and the deal will allow Google to better support file-centric workloads already running off-premises and on the cloud. Uh, and this may even eventually replace Google's own cloud file store with the Elastic File Solution, which many think is much better. I wonder if they were actually planning on this this acquisition all along, even, even uh, back in episode 17 kind of timeline where they were working on this integration. Yeah, try before you buy. Yeah, it doesn't get them a lot more, uh, this integration, you know, because the partnership already got them billing, already got them the ability to have it in their console, and so you know, you're buying them, what are you really buying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you're buying the team that developed it. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I still am sort of disappointed with a lot of these file system um, offerings from the cloud providers. It seems like they're always uh, just simply built on top of the, uh, the other natives instead of really being uh their own native so i mean this thing is running on instances it has to be if it's a third party yeah this this was instances running in your own account but managed by google on behalf of elastifile yeah Yeah. i just think these guys should be amazon amazon's got their service but they they should be cloud native services well i mean elastifile had you know, it was able to work on Azure or on AWS. If you remember, we talked about that. Yep. This was, you know, just interesting to me overall because I mean, you have the uh, the appliances from both Azure and AWS that you can deploy on premise that have you know direct connectivity back to S3. I mean, Elastifile can do some of that as well. There's there's a lot of different use cases here. Um, just overall, you know, for two hundred million dollars, if it got them the team and it got them the technology and it, it is an improvement over Google Cloud File Store, then I, I think it's a win for them. I wonder what the revenue was for Elastifile. Well, well, I don't know. <laughs> And I wonder if they're going to continue, um, presumably they won't, um, serving customers on AWS. I mean, I assume that might be a case. Or maybe another one of those opportunities for Google to say, look, this solution works in Amazon, too, to help you move off of Amazon to us. For sure, (laughs) right? Revenue-wise, though, with a $75 million raise and only a $200 million exit, that's not a very good exit, actually, when you do the math on that. So maybe they weren't uh, doing quite as well as they would like. Perhaps it was a risk uh, acquisition. You know, Google Google saw the risk of the company not being successful, but wanted the technology. Chump change. <laughs> Trump, Trump change <laughs> for Google. Change. Just so it's a you know loose pocket change from Sergey. Yeah. So, so Google also announced a new production debugging coming to the Google Cloud Source Repository. Uh, so apparently, a Stackdriver debugger uh, is used by thousands of developers in conjunction with Cloud Source Repositories, which is their version of GitHub. Uh, but the debugger isn't a full-fledged code browser, and so they aren't tightly integrated today. But now, uh, they are now tightly integrated, so you can do debugging right from your source code. Uh, and this also allows you to do two new features to your source code, including snapshotting to create point-in-time images of your app's local variables and stack they're triggered, as well as log points, which allow you to dynamically insert log statements into your running services without redeploying them. So live re- uh, live-time debugging from your code right into your Google Cloud infrastructure. Pretty impressive technology. 
Yes, yeah, the stamp shots are the idea of stamp shots are really really cool, and the uh, log points slightly concerning. Like, I mean, I, I guess it's limited to only inserting log statements, but modifying your running code without actually having to do redeployment uh, that like I question the technology behind that really. <laughs> that's um that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really get a clear idea of what how I would implement it or how I'd have to write my code to accept the log point. I simply have to have some type of listener that the log point service can basically say, hey, enter a, a dynamic error into the log and think you're going. And, and you know, I also don't know if this is something you'd use in production. I mean, they say production debugging, but I assume it's something you typically use more in dev and, and staging environments to debug issues with your code. Yeah, you would hope. <laughs> yeah. You would hope so, at least. <laughs> yeah, I hope Amazon do a similar thing, actually. Um, debugging step functions things like that it can be really really tedious uh, without uh, an easy way to put um, debugs in anywhere in the anywhere in the chain didn't we talk about um, that they in some functions they allowed the ability for you to do injections and breakouts uh, between steps didn't we talk about that at one point oh maybe we did I think we did perhaps not in the not within a function though not within a, I don't think within the code. I don't think within the step or in the inside yeah. the lambda function but I think between um, the step functions, you can now insert breaks or, you know, different loop conditions and stuff like that, that if you're trying to debug a step function yep. live. So Google has an interest in new Jenkins, uh, Google Kubernetes plugin to deploy software to K8, uh, Kubernetes simpler. Uh, Jenkins has, of course, supported Kubernetes for a long time, but has been difficult to manage for more robust deployment strategies. With the new Jenkins Google Kubernetes plugin, uh, you can now provide a build step that streamlines deploying workloads to GKE clusters across multiple GCP projects. So the new interface allows you to simplify, uh, specify your project ID, your cluster, your namespace, and your Kubernetes manifests, uh, and makes it all very simple and part of your Jenkins pipeline. So this is really actually nice, because uh, the, the Kubernetes stuff that's in there today is doesn't really understand Google projects, doesn't understand any of that. So this is super nice. Yeah, this is a piece that uh, um, I think scares a lot of people off from using Kubernetes when they're looking at integrating it with their pipelines. Making that easier is going to, I think, definitely increase adoption. Well, and a lot of the the patterns that you end up in when you get to more complexity is that you end up running kubectl scripts, right? And so then, then you're dealing with kubectl state, and you're dealing with, you know, how does that get separated out from the runtime versus where the state gets stored, and there's a bunch of issues running kubectl commands um, in that type of environment. So this is a super nice way to simplify some of those deployments. If only Jenkins could deploy itself on GKE. <laughs> Uh, it sort of can, but yeah, it could, could do better. Uh, also, uh, the new plugin also includes a new verify deployment step, which is another problem that you used to have with um, Kubernetes with kubectl, because it would just deploy the pod and say, yep, the pod's deployed, but didn't actually validate that the, plot actually, the pod actually stood up and is servicing traffic, where this new plugin can actually do that and validate that too. So if it doesn't actually be able to deploy the service with the pod, it can actually fail your build, which is pretty nice too. Cool. We have just, uh, since you said that, we actually have several times in the past built Jenkins jobs to build Jenkins servers in the cloud. Very nice. Yes, Inception. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, and the whole, the, if you're using um, Jenkins Enterprise, the CJE product, the cloud use Jenkins Enterprise, uh, it has a whole runtime built on top of Kubernetes, so it actually make kubectl calls to deploy masters and slaves and a bunch of other stuff. Um, it's actually part of their managed offering as well. But if you're doing it in the open source way, which I know you guys are doing, uh, Peter, uh, then it's pretty yeah. nice to be able to do that too. 
Yeah. Uh, Google has announced a new cloud region they're going to be building in 2020, as well as a Google data center for things like uh, Google G Suite and YouTube, etc. in Nevada, of all places. Uh, this will, region will support the Southwest region. Uh, the new data center, of course, will come online in 2020, as I mentioned. Uh, and this is in addition to the new Salt Lake City data center coming online in early 2020. Uh, with this Nevada region and Salt Lake City, this will bring it to seven regions in the United States. Uh, Caesars Entertainment apparently is a Google Cloud customer, and they had this to say. Uh, Caesars Entertainment has selected Google Cloud because we depend on highly reliable performance as well as a scalability for our, for our data analytics initiatives, said Gene Lee, SVP of Chief Analytics Officer for Caesars Entertainment. The addition of Google Cloud region in Las Vegas combined with the sophisticated capabilities of BigQuery and TensorFlow should enable Caesars to further differentiate the gaming, hospitality, and entertainment experiences we are able to offer to our individual guests. Yeah, talk about facial recognition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We want to know that you are on the blacklist and you are being exited from the casino as fast as possible. That fake mustache isn't going to do it this time, Peter. <laughs> nope, nope, not going to work. I, it's interesting to me that Caesars is a big Google Cloud customer because uh, a lot of reInvent is actually at Caesars properties, uh, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, I guess they're happy to take money from anyone. Well, I mean, with the, with the way Las Vegas is going right now, I think they're, any money is good money to them. Gambling is not doing well oh, these really? days. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I don't feel bad for them. That's weird. I don't. I don't either. It's so weird. Yeah. I mean, we know this is all about facial recognition, and uh, you know, analytics is is all about tracking players and things like that, and perhaps even uh, hotel guests and things. But are are you guys concerned about the um, you know, the the Apple move to 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 use Face ID over even fingerprints or or pins anymore? I mean, it's all located in the TPC or TPU chip inside the phone. So they don't actually send that back to the cloud. It's all in the device. Um, so I don't really, it doesn't really bother me that much. And it's easy to disable. So if you're you know, being arrested, you can disable it without <laughs> too much issue uh, <laughs> before they get your phone, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've been using the Face ID for the last year now, and I, I love it. Uh, it doesn't concern me too much, though. I mean, overall, Apple's focus on privacy and how they deal with um, you know, the, we're now requiring third parties who want to use Apple ID, uh, if they're going to offer Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, I think that's a really nice move. And I think that's, you know, for people who are privacy con- conscious, I think, um, the phone from Apple is getting better and better in that space, but you know, someone out there might be like, no, no you don't understand. And we'll send me an email saying I'm wrong, but I'd, I'd be interested to know more because I definitely don't feel that way about the Android ecosystem as much. How would you feel if if um, that that data was uploaded to the cloud, so so that Apple could provide services outside the you know the uh, the realm of your your own device? I would start to question that more because then you're talking about you know who's going to have access to that facial ID scan and who who are they and who's making those cameras. I mean, if Apple was producing them and they were something I could find at an Apple checkout and it was an Apple device, then maybe I'd be okay with it, but that, that would definitely make me a little less uh, eager about it. Okay. I had the visions of, of um, you know, everyone everyone going into uh, the, the, the Face ID thing, and then Apple kind of pivoting to cloud storage and, and um, external access to those those um, IDs. So, for example, you could be walking down the street and, and the Apple device in the shop window recognizes you and plays a custom ad or says, hi, Justin, as you walk by to get your attention, that kind of thing. I, I mean, based on what they've said so far under Tim Cook, that's that's not their direction and that's not what they want to go to. So I, I would be surprised, but you never know. You know, things happen. I mean, even between my iPad and my iPhone, they don't share facial data. I had to set up my face on both devices separately. So. And I think the real question, because you nailed it with the, um, the fact that Apple's really positioning themselves as a privacy leader. Um, 
everyone's going to have a picture of your face at some point. And right now, the government has one. Everyone who has got a driver's license, at least, has one. I just got my driver's license renewal in the mail, and instead of getting an extension paper like I used to, I got a new ID with my picture on it. <laughs> so, well, the, Ita- the Italian government now has my uh, photo as well, <laughs> from being going through customs with my passport. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they took, you know, even though they had my passport scanned, they just took a photo of me to make sure they they knew who I was. People so. worse than Apple already have my picture. So, yeah. oh well. At this point, I'm just going to try not to get arrested. Might be more difficult than you think, Peter. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Google's also announcing. Uh, this is really Google Cloud specific, but uh, announcing a new subsea cable from Portugal to South Africa. Uh, this is a cable to go from Lisbon, Portugal, to Cape Town, as well as have branching capabilities. And the first branch they'll do is Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, the cable has additional branching capabilities for other countries in the future. Uh, and the new cable uses space division multiplexing technology with approximately 20 times more network capacity than the last cable built to serve the same region. How many miles is that? Oh, wow. A thousand miles? A couple thousand miles? Is that round Earth miles or flat Earth miles? <laughs> <laughs> the technology behind this is absolutely awesome though i mean google didn't develop it themselves but the company who did um that you know they mentioned the 12 cores so each each individual fiber used to have just one core and now that now each individual fiber has 12 separate cores which each carry data but um but more than that the way they encode the signals is, has changed they've got better technology at each end and they can break out those 12 cores into individual fibers which is how they do the branches off to different places but um it was the people who developed this, whose name escapes me right now, but they they tested um, up to like a, a petabit per second. Wow! Over, over this over this type of cable with this technology, that is, uh, I think they they quoted something like five thousand high definition movies transferred from one end of the cable to the other end of the cable over sixty miles. I think they did the test in in one second. Wow! It's... <laughs> something like that is just going to change the world, right? That... A pet, yeah, a petabit per second is. Uh... Well, especially with the ability for additional branching off of this cable uh, to other African countries in the future, that's going to be a huge, you know, huge access thing that I think will make innovation beyond South Africa uh, a much bigger deal. So, uh, this is called the Equineo cable. Uh, this apparently joins the Do Not cable and the Curie cable, uh, which connect Europe and U.S. as well as uh, over to Asia area. It's apparently their third cable. So, uh, Google's definitely investing in infrastructure in a big, big way. And it's very safe infrastructure as well because you know it's, it's in the ocean. So I mean, people could go and trawl it up and, and damage it if they wanted to, and that's happened in various parts of the world. But you know, notably, this isn't traversing over land. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would be too expensive to go over land. Could you imagine trying to negotiate with all the governments in Africa to run a cable from Portugal all the way to, uh, to yeah. South Africa? I mean, there's no other way than to go through the sea. Yeah. Oh, well, let's move on to uh, Asia, uh, which is announcing a new migration program. Uh, this is a set of best practices based on their experience migrating large customers like Chevron, J.B. Hunt, and Carlsberg Beer. Uh, customers will work hand-in-hand with Microsoft experts and specialized migration partners like Foghorn uh, to get curated step-by-step guidance based on the proven cloud adoption frameworks uh, for Azure. Uh, they also include technical skill building and training, uh, access to free Azure migration utilities, including Azure Migrate and Azure Cost Management, uh, as well as offers to reduce migration costs, uh, including Azure Hybrid benefits and free extended security updates for both Windows Server 2008 and SQL Server 2008, uh, which is one more way of them trying to get you to move your legacy workloads to the cloud. Mark Gunter from Canadian Imperial Bank said, we are on a multi-year transformation journey and cloud migration is an important first step. Asia Migration Program offered the right mix of training, best practice, guidance, tooling, and specialized partners to best meet our needs. Importantly, Microsoft was prepared to work hand-in-hand with us and show deep commitment to our success. Mm, deep commitment. 
to Emily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I wonder, I mean, I'd love to know what these workloads were like from, from, uh, from Chevron, JB Hunt, and Carlsberg. Well, they just introduced the program, so it is always inter- interesting. Yeah. I mean, they're saying they, they did one-off packages for these companies, and then basically based on that learning, they've now created their best practices, and they're going to sell those to you as part of the migration service with, a, with our Asia partner. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, it, especially for large organizations, this is such a challenge. So it's... All the help they can get, I think, is going to be welcome. Azure is also announcing the new preview of Azure Data Share. Uh, This is for uh, data that needs to be shared between business partners, third parties, and outside organizational boundaries of your enterprise. Uh, Common methods in the past for sharing this data is FTP or web APIs, or they didn't mention it, but I was thinking open S3 buckets, uh, (laughs) which don't have the proper security, governance, and meet the enterprise standards of most enterprises today. Uh, So to solve this problem, Microsoft is releasing Azure Data Share. This initial preview covers the ability to share big data with external organizations via blob storage or Azure data lake storage. Uh, and new services will be added over time as well. Uh, this is a really nice service that makes it super easy to share this data between your partners and you and audit that data. Yeah, this is really cool. I, I kind of question, you know, they say common methods of sharing is web APIs. Well, surely this is driven by an API anyway, so it's just a different API. But I, I do like that it's um, it's been recognized as a need, which which obviously many customers have. I know, I know uh, I've needed this kind of thing in the past. So Yeah, especially with the larger and larger data sets, like genomics data sets. Uh, it's, these things, it's like the only place they could live if you're going to be collaborating with a third-party partner or a third-party vendor who needs to do uh, analytics on that data or or share in a job on that data. And the only way to do it is to have it in the cloud and have everyone have secure access to it and putting a managed service around that to make it easy. I mean, we could all do it today uh, with the natives, but making a managed service around that, uh, I think is going to be welcome in the industry. Yeah, and hopefully no more dealing with uh, sharing SSH keys with customers or uh, passwords with customers, that kind of thing. So anything that, get, anything that gets rid of that kind of complexity. Anything that adds manual work, really, to to these kind of processes is uh, is great. Indeed. I think it's a really nice feature. I'm excited to see what they do with it. And when they make this GM, they'll have some good use cases uh, and customer testimonials. So. Uh, Amazon Session Manager now launches tunneling support for SSH and SCP. Uh, so this allows you to basically connect to your host uh, between client and server without the need of a Bastion host. Uh, you connect directly to the Session Manager service on AWS, and then that handles the proxying over to the box in your network. Uh, you can do this currently uh, with Session Manager, but you have to do it through a web interface. And so this is nice to be able to eliminate that web interface and be able to use a direct client uh, to do SCP or SSH as well. And all you need to get started with this is an SSH client that supports the proxy command. Awesome. Yep. 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 Now I don't need to have my port 22 open anymore to, to anyone, let alone uh, the world or my own organization. If we can if we can tunnel stuff over HTTP to that client running on those, those instances, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I turned off uh, for the website that hosts the, the CloudPod. Uh, I turned off SSH access to it a long time ago. I've been using Session Manager, and, and Session Manager is fine, but you know, I sometimes am annoyed by using the web interface uh, to access it. So I'll be setting this up for that use case uh, when I need to log into the box, which isn't very often because it's, it's all containers and auto-magically auto-healing, uh, as all things should be on Amazon. But uh, definitely something I'm kind of looking forward to. It's cool. It's, it's, I think there's some um, commercial products which offer this kind of thing, which this will completely uh, put oh, in the business yeah. if, if people pivot, sure. For sure. As, I guess it's, is, is it kind of a step in the direction of the way Google does access to instances? Yes, it is very much more in that direction. And if they'd announced this at reInvent or Reinforce, I would have been much happier on my draft picks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. 
but at the same time, it, it also it's also um, a potential. Is it a potential risk now? I mean, I guess the, the, the session manager has it as a client on the on the instance, I guess, which connects out to the the session manager API. Correct. Yeah, so. you already have a you're already running an agent from Amazon on your box that talks back to session manager to do patching and vulnerability scanning and to do this this intermediate uh, connectivity and it does also does um, session recording too, which is really handy. So if you are RDPing or SSHing to the box, it'll record that session and put that data into an S3 bucket for auditing later. So overall, it's a really great feature, which is why I like it. Uh, and this is just a nice way to make it even better. Yeah, I can't wait to stop building Bastion hosts for customers. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it is kind of funny, though, that they say that you know it's sort of a, a security benefit because you don't have to have inbound 22 open, but instead inbound is... Uh, inbound 22 is open to system manager and from system no, no, manager. It's, it's a it's an agent on the box so the agent's actually talking to uh the session manager service so it's an outbound connection from the box on an inbound yeah from your laptop like when you're no you're from your laptop in. i mean from your laptop you're talking to session manager that's outbound. Right. but from the the server itself which is what i'm trying to protect that's a that's not an inbound connection that's an outbound connection to session manager and then it's basically happening as a bridge for you yeah it's probably a website or something so right, the, the session manager in well, no, no. The session manager, the, the session manager agent runs on your EC2 instance yeah. and, keep, and creates a, a web socket probably to the session to the session manager API, and that that maintains that connection, keeps that connection open permanently. And then when the, the, when you want to SSH to it, you connect to, to separately. You don't connect to that, to that box. You connect to the session manager API and say, "I want to SSH." Which just crosses you, it straight through. Uh, and you establish a tunnel through through that existing web socket connection, yeah. probably. But there's authentication in place, you know. Yeah, and also the session, all the things that happen with the session recording and, and all that too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not like you could connect directly to the instance over over HTTP and get right, right. an SSH session. No, I know. Yeah. Now, if, what, what would be even better is if the agent did not communicate through the public um, interface at all through the public API, but through the um, through like a link, one of those link local addresses into you know, the metadata service. Right. You could actually you could right. actually run it through the metadata service completely, and then you wouldn't even need to have the, the instance connecting out to the public API. That would be interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, other SSH improvements, uh, Amazon announced the new Amazon EC2 Instance Connect, uh, which is a simpler way to secure and connect to your instances using SSH. Uh, so you can now use IAM policies as well as audit connections via Amazon CloudTrail events uh, to basically dynamically create SSH keys on demand for authorized users um, or you know, have that run all the time and be available to you. So if you do want to use the old SSH method or you want to couple that with the prior announcement, uh, you get a really nice temporary SSH key uh, pre uh, system here, which is pretty nice. This one I really like. This is We've hacked together a bunch of stuff that does stuff similar <laughs> over the last two or three years. Yeah. And again, it's just like there's always there's always little edge cases that you're not thinking of, and the fact that the keys are one-time use are that's super cool. Yeah, I mean, it kind of eliminates the need to have a PEM file now on the server, yeah. which um, makes me super happy because yeah. that was always kind of annoying, especially if you know the the engineer who built the server is on PTO and you can't get onto the box because he has the <laughs> PEM file. Uh, that's, a, that's a little bit annoying, and so uh, it's super that's... nice that you don't have to worry about that now with this new uh, Amazon EC2 Instance Connect. <laughs> that's a little bit close to home. <laughs> <laughs> it's never happened to us, Jonathan. Ever? I don't, absolutely I don't know what you're not. Talking about. No, no, and absolutely, I did not get a I did not get a call this morning while on PTO because I had my personal keys running in production. That's fine. I get it. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Maybe we'll have the Jonathan Eats Crow section at the end as a regular occurrence instead of <laughs> <laughs> instead of the cool tools. Nice. <laughs> Go on. I was going to say anyway. It'd be nice if this would integrate with um, with Active Directory and things like that as well. 
I mean, I assume, you know, if your IAM policies are, you know, single sign-on from AD, then you can kind of get that connectivity all the way back to AD through IAM integration and SSO um, into this. So I think you kind of get that. Um, it maybe isn't quite perfect. I haven't, I haven't tried that yet, but um, definitely something I'll be checking out. Yeah. Uh, Amazon has finally released the number one feature of why you're buying cloud health <laughs> or any other uh, cost optimization feature, which is new budget reporting. Uh, so now you can create budget reports uh, to send daily, weekly, or monthly to monitor the performance of your Amazon budget. Uh, and it, the nice thing about this one is that it can work at the payer level or the individual account level, and you can define the frequency and the email address as well as particular business units, accounts, tags, um, or different environments that you want to be able to filter into this report. So this is a really nice uh, improvement to budgeting in Amazon and very well uh, wanted and needed by many customers. So super happy to see this one. You're going to put Corey Quinn out of business at this, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't tell you how to save money. It just tells you how much money you spent. Here's how bad you're doing. Go find <laughs> yeah, someone exactly. to help you. Maybe, maybe you need to go contact Corey. Maybe it should have that in disclaimer in the report. We should, uh, we should ask him to set himself up as the, uh, on, the, on the event bridge. We can send our budget reports directly to him. Yeah, there you go. Maybe we can make him a, a provider on there. Or, you know, maybe we can or specify him as an email recipient. So, there you go. <laughs> so this is the big difference here, I guess, you know, because they've been doing budget alerts for um, forever, but uh, now we're, we're sending on a schedule instead of waiting until you exceed your alarm. Yeah, and those budget alerts were kind of garbage anyways because – and I actually don't know if this is a problem that's in the budget report too, but um, the problem with, like, the, the budget – alert was that it didn't factor in anything for RIs. So if you were like, well, I have an RI in this instance, and so I want to make sure I don't go over this price, um, you would still get a notice in the beginning of the month because it would be like, oh, you're going to go over this budget. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but that's before you give me the RI credit. Right. <laughs> so it makes no sense. Uh, so hopefully they've they've thought through some of that in the budget reports, uh, but definitely I haven't had a chance to test it enough because i got to come back from the vacation, but uh, we'll be playing with this one for that reason too. Wow, I'm just waiting to see the, the the last couple of lines of the budget report. It's going to say like a you know you you saved two million dollars this month, <laughs> kind, of like, kind of like when he goes to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, you maybe. All right, we're we're nearing the end stretch of this long list of new items. So Amazon has announced a new CloudWatch anomaly detection feature now in preview. Uh, anomaly detection applies machine learning algorithms to continuously analyze system and application metrics, determine a normal baseline, and surface anomalies with a minimal user intervention. Or intervention. Uh, intervention. Uh, you can use anomaly detection on metrics in your account, including custom and AWS service metrics. Uh, so this is super, super nice. You can also do uh, specify ex data exclusion periods, anomaly sensitivity, and daylight savings times adjustments too. So they thought through several of the gotchas of machine learning anomaly detection. That's really cool. I wonder if they factor in things like uh, like public holidays in different countries and things, you know, unusual events and things like that. Uh, I think it was mentioned that they have some capability for that as well, but uh, definitely stuff that you, it'll get better over time. It's machine learning. So Great for new workloads too. So many times I see new workloads and you wire up all the monitoring and then it's like time to go set thresholds. It's like, well, what should we set the thresholds at? It's like, nah, <laughs> no idea yeah. where to start. How great just on day one, at least you've got some intelligence going that you can fine tune later. Yeah, I mean, didn't uh, Azure release something really similar to this a few yeah, weeks ago? I think so. Yeah, they, they, everyone's kind of really trying to beef up their monitoring stack, but CloudWatch has been kind of uh, lagging behind. So it's definitely nice to see this one and, and other improvements they're making to CloudWatch eventing, etc. So definitely a nice improvement. Did you check out the pricing for this? I did not. Did you? Um, I'm browsing it right now. It's not too bad. 30 cents per metric per month. Yeah. Not too shabby. Definitely would encourage you to set your own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it includes custom metrics. Uh, 
Good for now. But you're already paying a fortune for the custom metric, so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's 30 cents more? Yeah. I feel like this is kind of a, a bit of a stealth uh, announcement, really, because in itself it's like, well, okay. But but now you think about the kinds of CloudWatch um, events that you could apply this to, it's really going to be quite powerful. Yeah, I think it, I think it has a ton of, ton of potential that will kind of get flushed out here in the next few weeks as they get customer feedback on it. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be good. I mean, I'm, th I'm thinking of the. I mean, th this is like the the real enabler for the for the AWS sim that hasn't been announced yet. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, it's coming. It's coming. All these things, they all. See, uh, this is why I made the draft picks that I did because you can kind of yeah. see the the tea leaves coming together. But well, not there yet. Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, let's do a Jedi update as everyone's favorite topic. So uh, June came and went, no Jedi announcement, and that was because Oracle appealed the decision that the, there was no. Uh, you know, issues in the uh, conflict of interest. Uh, but apparently the federal claims court, senior judge Eric Brugink has ruled that the, he was not convinced of the appeal as he wrote in the brief, Oracle cannot demonstrate prejudice in the procurement process because it failed to meet the bidding requirements set up by the DOD, which is pretty hilarious. So they were complaining about prejudice, but didn't even meet the, prior, the minimum requirements of the bid uh, to even be considered. So that's super awesome. Uh, he also ruled that he does not find any organizational conflict of interest and that an individual's conflict of interest did not impact the procurement process as a whole. Uh, and this now paves the way for a decision to be made on the Jedi contract by the end of August. Uh, Oracle isn't maybe done yet. They may appeal this all the way up to the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, but this will not stop the awarding of the decision at this point. If, do we this, do we do we have a uh, you have a prediction yet? Is it still fifty fifty as you're an AWS or? Uh... Uh, I'm still feeling pretty good AWS. I'm 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 sixty forty on it. I think sixty forty. Okay. Uh, Peter, you you have any more opinion on it? I know we've talked a lot about this. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel like AWS is in the driver's seat, um, and if Oracle wins this appeal, I am immediately suing the government for not buying my tank, which I have never even designed. <laughs> you do not even meet the basic bidding requirements uh, set out by the tank proposal. Exactly. I mean, this this I mean, a ten billion dollar contract is going to have, I would think, some material impact to the uh, stock value of either Microsoft or AWS. It's over how many years? Now? It's over ten years. Yeah, it's still... a long term. It'll it'll have an impact on stock yeah. for sure. Yeah, when it gets announced. All right. Well, that's it for new news, guys. Uh, that was a, a long slog <laughs> through a lot of stories, but uh, we, you know, we covered two weeks worth of news, so and a busy two weeks it was. Let's move on to the uh, lightning round for the news that wasn't worthy. It's so fitting that that's my, uh, my job to read. <laughs> um, <laughs> Google introduced uh, deep learning containers, consistent and portable across environments. Who else would design deep learning containers other than Google? It just it makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, again, aren't containers always consistent and portable across environments? Yeah. Isn't that the point of them in the first kind place? Kind of the point. Amazon CloudWatch Events now supports Amazon CloudWatch Logs as a target and tagging of CloudWatch Events rules. Well, duh. <laughs> Bingo. I got all the words. <laughs> I'm surprised Peter didn't sneak into that one somewhere. I totally would have fell for it. <laughs> AWS Code Build adds supports for... <laughs> Polyglot <laughs> builds. <laughs> oh, nice try! It was a good try. Yeah. <laughs> we should re we should release. You should uh, you should add to the notes of each of these uh, the the gotchas that you snuck in there on me that I fell for and didn't fall for. <laughs> I mean, you never fall for them. That's a problem. We, we keep changing them, and you just don't get them. So. 
That's all right. You're you're on top of it because we walked through them before. Right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so a polyglot build. Um, I, I don't know what that is exactly, but I guess it's glad that it supports it. Many thanks. I guess. If in the day that I need it, I'll be like, oh, thank God they announced it on episode 31 of the Cloud Pods. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, in a few months you can say, yes, they've always supported that. Exactly, because I forgot yeah. that it didn't exist before. <laughs> Amazon Elasticsearch service increases data protection with automated hourly snapshots at no extra charge. Yay, backups. <laughs> no extra charge? Are you serious? Uh, apart from the S3 storage cost for the snapshots, right? They're not giving you this for free. Oh, I'm sure. You don't get, yeah. you don't, you don't get anything for free. No, yeah, you're not getting that for free. Uh, maybe you are. I mean, I don't, it, doesn't say how long they would, it doesn't say how long they will maintain these hours. Yep, one hour. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, <laughs> exactly. if it's only one, why not? Amazon Aurora supports cloning across AWS accounts. What's the use case for this? Like, do I? Oh, you test to dev. Oh, dev to test to prod. Oh, yeah, dev test, dev oh. prod. That makes sense. I want to test against prod data. I want to troubleshoot against prod data. Yeah. I want to accidentally leak prod data from my wide open dev account. Uh, Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility now provides cluster deletion protection. I just wanted to hear you say with MongoDB compatibility. <laughs> with MongoDB compatibility, nothing, nobody. Again, this is one of those things like, you know, all services should either support cluster deletion protection or they shouldn't. Like, it's weird that these things get kind of trickled out over time and it's a bit annoying. Yep. Amazon DynamoDB now supports deleting a global secondary index before it finishes building. <laughs> That's awesome. I wish you could return my queries before I've sent them. I wish they would fix the CloudFront thing so I could actually delete my CloudFront distro before it finished building too because uh, that one's much, much worse than this. It's hilarious, right? Everyone thinks this is dumb until you've been the one who created one and you now you're like, I have to wait an hour before I get to delete it because I made a mistake. Oh, yeah, and even worse when you, when, when you can't create a new one because it shares the same alias or something. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Amazon Document DB <laughs> with Mongo compatibility <laughs> now supports stopping <laughs> and starting clusters. Again, I really just wanted you to say with Mongo DB. I saw you putting that in there. <laughs> no, no, I was there before because that is actually the official product name of Document DB uh, is Document DB with Mongo DB compatibility, which is either the most epic troll ever <laughs> from Amazon. They're like, well, if you're going to change your licensing terms to screw us, we're going to make sure we point out our competitive product to you with a name. <laughs> and they did it now with MongoDB and with Elasticsearch, which I find hilarious. So. I mean, presumably they, they always supported stopping and starting clusters. Otherwise, they could never have provided the service. Terminals. Well, I mean, they, they could stop them by <laughs> deleting it. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> what it was, right? Just like RDS used to be. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yep. Amazon Workspaces now supports copying images across AWS regions. Thank God. This is like the most basic feature you need. Like I'm going to have Workspace uh, for my employees that are global, my global organization. But, oh, no, I need to build it in every region. Yes. Thank goodness for this. <laughs> you know, not like they didn't have the technology before with AMI sharing. But, you know, I'm glad to, glad to see it. Make it to Workspaces. AWS resource groups are now SOC compliant. Isn't a resource group just a collection of servers? And those servers have a very high network connectivity between them. What about that wasn't SOC compliant before? Someone didn't fill out the form, maybe. 
<laughs> I, I guess that must be the like, right answer. I think answer, that's what it is. I think literally they just didn't go through the trouble of of going through the process, even though it would have been compliant. You still have to go through the process. Indeed. It's just, it was a really weird announcement. <laughs> yeah. New AWS public data sets available from Facebook, Yale, oh. Allen Institute, NOAA, and others. The Facebook thing is scary. Yeah, yeah like let's Amazon. Let's <laughs> let's get partnered up with Facebook and put it in our headline because that's what we want to be is talking about privacy with Facebook and public data sets. Perfect. And do you think uh, in others is included uh, Cambridge Analytica? Maybe I was just thinking <laughs> that exact same thing. A ding to Peter. Yep. A ding to Peter. Yep, yep. I think he may he may we may win it this week, Peter. <laughs> Yeah, so apparently the you know I was when I was writing this note up in the show notes, I was looking at it a little closer, and because you know, I said Facebook, and then you look at the the press release, and Facebook's kind of a buried in the press release. So marketing clearly got to them for the press release, and was like, no, no, Facebook can't be the first part. But then the headline writer didn't get that memo. Uh, but this is apparently for high resolution population density maps and demographic estimates by the Center of International Earth Science Information Network at Columbia University with Facebook. Uh, so Ooh. apparently this is a combination of both Facebook and Columbia University putting this data together to help you, um, you know, basically get your election uh, jerry-rigging going. So, great. AWS Config now enables you to provision AWS Config rules across all AWS accounts in your organization. This is amazing. This feature has been needed forever. <laughs> like I, you know, we have 160 some odd accounts, and having to create an Amazon config rule in every account, you know, requires a ton of automation. And now I don't have to do any of that. I just build it at the master account and I push it down. It's awesome. I'm surprised this didn't make the uh, the big headline news. That's a good one. I agree. Uh, it, I mean. While it's fantastic news, it's not that newsworthy. Because, <laughs> again, why this wasn't announced at Reinforce two weeks ago. Yeah, that ago, would have been a good one. That would have been a great one for Reinforce. Yeah. So just missed the, missed the bar. Amazon CloudWatch Container Insights for ECS and Fargate is now in preview. I mean, if there's anything I want insights in, it's containers. So fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. But no EKS. So no, 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 EKS. no EKS insights. We don't, we don't need insights in that because... You know, one's simple to use and the other one's super complicated, but you know, one that's complicated, we don't need insights for. AWS Container Services launches uh, Fluent Bit plugins for AWS. Finally admitting that no one wants to use CloudWatch logs. <sighs> yep. Azure Databox Heavy is now GA. Don't use it. Don't do it. Wait for Azure Databox Heavy Premium. <laughs> ding, ding. Uh, and... Final announcement, Oracle announces new Oracle Soul region. You mean the only region? Soul? <laughs> I would give you a big one for that, but since I thought of it, you don't get it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The most interesting part about this whole announcement, actually, was that the fact that apparently they're they're releasing like five data centers this year, and I, I still don't know where those customers for those five data centers come from. The question is, how many servers are in each data center? Five? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a closet someplace. It could be. It's a really big building. It's you know they basically take one of those uh, warehouse buildings and they put an Oracle logo on it and they put a single rack with a with a you know with an extension cord out to the neighbors next door because they're not buying power themselves. <laughs> and then they you know they use the local telco. It's perfect. You know, with a, an with extension a... cord. I was, I was thinking they would have thrown the coat hanger up over the power lines or something. I've oh seen yeah, maybe they'd be more true too. <laughs> yeah, either way, well, fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I can't give myself the win because that. I, I'm still against the judge being part of the competition, uh, and I got I've got two for Jonathan today, so Jonathan wins today. 
Oh yeah, John, the one hands down today. Yes. I've only had three weeks to think about my uh, <laughs> my, my comments this time. Nice. <laughs> I mean, uh, that, yeah. I would like to say that was true, but the, the show notes were not ready till yesterday. So, yeah. <laughs> unless you were paying attention to the announcements the that I follow, I saw those announcements going past in, in our RSS feed. I was blown away by how much activity there is right now. There's just so much stuff. I, I figured coming out of Reinforce and with July Fourth holiday, I was like, yeah, the New York Summit probably have a couple things. No big deal. Uh, but no, no, it was it was a, a, a very full couple of weeks while I was out. Uh, just crazy uh, how much content came out. So glad to uh, see the cloud wars are continuing in a strong way. For sure. Uh, what do we have there for summits now for for AWS? They're, they're heading out of um, out of the US, I think, at this point, aren't they? Like uh, yeah, they're off to uh, Beijing next end of July, and then uh, into Mexico City, New Delhi. Uh, yeah, so everything is now international except for the Toronto on October third brings it back home. Yes. <laughs> it's close enough yep indeed all right guys well thanks again for joining us here and uh going through this this massive list of announcements so we'll see you guys next week yeah it's been great to be back see you then yes me too thanks guys and that is the week in cloud we would like to thank our sponsor foghorn consulting subscribe on itunes wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod or join our slack channel go to our website thecloudpod.net for sign-up instructions.